Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the NBA Podcast. I'm Brian Taporic, and we have actual NBA basketball to discuss today. We made it through the offseason, the regular season has started, and it has been an eventful few days. So we will hit reactions to opening night. We're also going to talk about the rookie scale extensions that got signed earlier this week, a much more explosive deadline than we expected. Before we get into all of that, a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. In our bio, you can find our Twitter handles, so give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found. On iTunes, please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. And we're now being hosted on Spreaker, so check them out on Twitter, at Spreaker. Joining me today, as always, is my very stable genius of a co-host, Morton Jensen. How's it going, Mort? It's going well, Brian, but I will say, after looking at all the rookie contract extensions and Chetty Osman, you're looking at over $950 million worth of, of uh, extension money. And we're sitting here. I just want $1 million, Brian. Just one. <laughs> Is that too much to ask for? Just one. I'll, I'll even settle for a tenth of a percent of that total cut. I'm, not I, I'm also good with that. I'm yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> one day, my friend. One day. <laughs> we also have a very special guest with us to start the season. We have Chris Herring, a senior NBA writer at 538. Chris, how's it going? I'm good, guys. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get underway, can you let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work? Sure. Uh, I'm at Herring, H-E-R-R-I-N-G, underscore NBA uh, on Twitter. And I want to say it's basically the only social media outlet I use. Um I write for both the, the ESPN and the 538 side, mostly for 538. And so um, just typing my name into the search bar would get you all my stories, I think. Very good. Yeah. Give Chris a follow. An excellent resource, as always, uh, during the NBA season. I'm sure a lot of great stuff coming from you and the 538 staff this year. Um, so, guys, really, we're just going to freelance through this thing because we had you know it, it, we're only three days into the season here so we don't want to be too hot takey yet we're going to save that for the like another week or two and then we'll start firing away we just want to go through some early season takeaways from what you've seen you know most teams really aside from the clippers have only played one game um so chris what's the first thing that caught your eye in these first few days of the season um i mean i, I think you could look at any number of things but i think for the most part, people have been focused on the teams that, you know, that were expected to be either a powerhouse or something along those lines or the favorites. And so when you look at that, um, it's hard to not take notice of what the Warriors did um, against the Clippers or what they didn't do defensively. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and I think, honestly, it, it wasn't that big of a surprise to me. It's, it's a little jarring just because we're used to what we're used to with that team, but this is a totally different team. And I thought it was kind of refreshing for Steve Kerr after the game to essentially say that, that this mm -hmm. is reality and that, you know, the last five years, we use the word unreal so much sometimes in sports, but, you know, it kind of was an unreal experience that the Warriors were essentially a 60 to 70 win team, you know, in one case, 73 win team for the better part of four or five years. Um, you lose the person who a lot of people would say was the best player from that roster um, in free agency, and he would have been injured anyway, so he wouldn't be able to play most of this year. Um, you lose, you know, who a lot of people would say is maybe your third best player 
Um, and definitely one of your most versatile defenders, someone that can defend in the post and obviously changes the, the whole scheme you can play on offense. And you lose, you know, a, a finals MVP uh, from a few years ago who, you know, can help you handle the ball, can be your, your lead on-ball defender on the wing. Um, and you lose Livingston, who, you know, I know he wasn't doing much last year, but still, you know, the cerebral nature of what he does. This is a totally different team. And I think you saw a lot of that against the Clippers where they just look lost and mm. they look like a young team. And it is a whole lot for Steph to try to carry on his shoulders. Um, yes, you could delegate some of that to D'Angelo Russell, but he's not Clay, um, And he, he never will be Clay as far as the type of game he plays. And defensively, there's no, you know, you can't even really put the two of them in the same sentence. I wouldn't even really put them in the same paragraph defensively. So, you know, that stood out to me. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people are naturally going to wonder, like, is that does that say more about the Clippers last night or does it say more about the Warriors? But it's probably a little bit of both. And so I think the Clippers are a major story just because they have looked pretty dominant and they've done so much of it. I mean, they've done all of it without Paul George. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how they look right now and how much better can they be once they have Paul George and once they hit a rhythm with him as well? Because um, I'll be honest, part of me was looking last night. And I, I get how premature it is, but part of me was looking at that situation last night wondering, man, if the Clippers only had this roster and Paul George wasn't coming back, like they could probably still contend for a title. And right. you know, it, that that's a scary thing to say when you've got a max guy who's in his prime coming back. And so, um, so you know, you look at that, but I, I think you can look at any of the, the key teams uh, so far, any of the, the favorites so far, and, you know, have one takeaway from it at least, but... To me, I mean, having watched that game last night, that's kind of first and foremost on my mind. Um, but, you know, I know we're going to talk about this too, but the Suns are interesting just as far as, you know, I think their first game kind of gave people pause and said, you know, are they better than we were giving them credit for? You know, do they have some adults in the room now with that team? And that's why it's such a gut punch with the whole thing with Aiton and, uh, and the fact that he's going to be suspended now. But, um, but so that's interesting. There's, there's a lot of weird stuff between that. You look at Zion. Um, you know, not being here for the first few weeks, six to eight weeks. Um, and what does that mean for New Orleans? And, and how are they going to respond to that? Does it kind of take them out of the mix for a playoff spot already, essentially? And, and so there's so many things we could look at, you know, not even mentioning the Lakers yet or anything like that. All this stuff is fascinating to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and this is the longest we've gone without mentioning the Lakers in a podcast for a while. So that's <laughs> a new record for us. I'm excited. But yes, I, I think to echo your uh, comments about Kerr in particular, you know, I saw the comments too about him saying like, you know, this is the new normal. And he was talking about like how they have just been spoiled with the continuity of that roster of having so many key pieces. You know, of course they had to incorporate Kevin Durant a couple of years ago, but you know, Steph, Dre, Clay, Iggy, Livingston had been there through that whole time. And now he's saying like, we have to go back to basics. Like we're, we're <laughs> drilling stuff that we didn't have to worry about a couple of years ago. So yeah, I mean, if if this were the hot take episode after last night's game, I saw a lot of people like, uh-oh, I, are the Warriors even going to make the playoffs? And, you know, there was a lot of confidence in them going into the year. Like, yeah, they lost a lot, but don't overthink this. They still have Steph. They still have Dre. They still have D'Angelo. I think last night, if nothing else, reinforced that their margin of error is a lot slimmer than it has been in years past. But it's also, I mean, you as you noted, Chris, like the Clippers have looked phenomenal coming out of the gate. And it's important 
I think not to overreact to any one particular loss. We'll get to the Lakers in a bit because <laughs> I don't think they're heeding that advice. Uh, you know, the Clippers are going to have one of the better defenses in the league this year, especially perimeter defense. So they were uniquely equipped to uh, combat the Warriors in particular. Mort, I'm going to spare you from talking about the Bulls for a minute. <laughs> Can we, I talk we... about the Hornets then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. If, if you want to get into I that was definitely one of the bigger surprises from Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, look, so obviously they're at a major talent disparity compared to the vast majority of teams in the NBA. But one of the ways you can bridge that gap is by hoisting up a ton of threes. And they did that and they made, I think, 53 percent of that, which, of course, isn't sustainable in the long run. But but I like the idea of just basically trying to use math as a way of of just squeezing out more wins. And more important, most importantly for them, they looked fun. Like we had them, I think, 30th or 29th yeah. or something on our league pass rankings. I think um, all three but, of us were 30th. Yeah, Dave Dave had them there as well. So, I I mean, if they are just a product that can can at least put, you know, asses in seats and play a fun brand of basketball, shooting up a ton of threes and, and trying to get to the line and get to the hole, I mean, then they're going to be worth a look, even though they might not be very good. And I think it's a pretty good idea to try to bridge that talent gap by just taking a bunch of, bunch of threes. I mean, the Bulls were just completely wasted defensively, and I, I don't think they anticipated this barrage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was very impressed with them coming out of that. And if we look across the league, we, we also saw some pretty good debuts from, you know, the Luca Kristaps uh, pairing uh, against Washington. Admittedly, it was against Washington, so that's <laughs> not that's not a whole lot to go for. But I think they combined for 57 points, and they looked very fluid together, which is is noteworthy moving forward. Markel Fultz in Orlando. I mean, mm-hmm. just basically shot off Twitter with that full court dunk that he had, which was great. Um, Detroit, I man, they played two games, uh, much like the Clippers did. Uh, I, I'm not sure where they're going. Like Lake out is not great. Uh, I've been surprised about Drummond's uh, consistency over the first two couple of games, and Derek Rose has been hitting in the spots. But where they go from here, like in the long run, that's man, that's anybody's guess. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to the low post yesterday with uh, Zach and Brian Windhorst, and they were getting into that a little bit where they were saying, you know, like now the trade deadline, Beal can't be moved and all these rookie skill guys can't be moved. So is it just going to be a totally lackluster deadline? And they're like, well, the Pistons, if Blake is hurt for a while and Reggie Jackson, I believe, left with a back injury last night, we don't know. I haven't seen how severe it is. Hopefully not too bad. But that roster, I mean, going into the season, we said, you know, they've got some decent top end talent. Luke Kennard's been great to start the year as well, but they thin out really quickly. And if Blake's out for a while, you know, Andre Drummond can opt out after this year. I guess when he made his entrance last night, he did like the cash money grabbing sign as he's being introduced. So he is sending quite a hint that he probably intends to opt out next summer, which, you know, given the dearth of good players on the market is probably a good call on his end. So, but yeah, he'll I mean, start something with that money grab thing. <laughs> he did it towards the bloody. Not now everyone's doing it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I mean, it raises a very fair question of like, if Blake is out for a while, do the Pistons start to get a little worried 
going up to that trade deadline with Drummond. It's going to be a really fascinating subplot to monitor this season. But Jeff Siegel on Twitter the other night had a really good video thread of like Drummond's ball handling this year has been surprisingly good to start the season. I'm excited. The Pistons, or the yeah, the Pistons play the Sixers uh, Saturday night, and it'll be really interesting to see how Drummond fares. I mean, that's you know a guy in Embiid who has just gotten into his head completely over the last couple of years. It'll be fascinating to see how Drummond fares in that matchup in particular. And he's shooting 81% from the free throw line so far. Yeah. He's going to make a ton of money next summer if he keeps this up. And then I feel very dumb. We, we did a like picks thing at work where, you know, you did awards, but also like rebounding leader, points leader, assist leader. I picked Steven Adams for the rebound leader because I wanted to be contrarian, and I feel very dumb about that already. It's Andre Drummond's title to lose. Yeah, you probably should. Yeah, yeah. I have some regrets. Inhale good. Wouldn't that smell better with farm-rich mozzarella sticks in front of you? Yes, find farm-rich in the freezer aisle and enjoy. Chris, you brought up Aiton and the Suns. So let's get into that because that was one of the biggest surprises, really two of the biggest surprises this week. First, the Suns not only won, but completely blitzed the Kings, 124 to 95. And this is a Kings team, you know, that won 39 games last year that entered the season with, I don't know, playoff buzz is the right word, but at least playoff aspirations. So they're riding high Wednesday. And then news comes out on Thursday night that Aiton has tested positive for diuretic, is going to be suspended for 25 games. It sounds like he's working with the NBPA to maybe negotiate a reduction in that, but for all we know right now, he's out for the next 25 games. Um, So how does that affect the Suns moving forward? What do you see for this Suns team this year? Well, I mean, you know, they're always, they, they might be the most, it's weird. They're the most predictable team, but also unpredictable. Like we didn't know, none of us saw that coming on opening night. Right. Um, if anything, people probably kind of like the Kings trajectory and feel like they have the potential to have a nice season for themselves and maybe, you know, be in the conversation again for maybe one of the last spots in the West. I don't really hear many people saying that about the Suns, but they did bring in some guys, you know, and have some guys from last year. They got late in the year that basically you know, are, are, are real players that may not be fantastic players, but are solid enough. And I think Rubio was an example of that. They bring in Aaron Baines and you've got Sarge. Like, they, they've got some guys, you know. This is a team that, you know, you put them around and, you know, they have their work ethic and maybe that kind of bleeds into the rest of the team. Um, and then you have a surprising win like that. And Aiton played very well in that game. I, I think he had three or four blocks which, you know, a lot of people, that was kind of his Achilles heel last year, was um, not being great on defense, which I think we all kind of expected he wouldn't be great defensively in his first year. Um, and so to kind of have a, a, a season-opening performance where he's recovering the way he was defensively and making plays at the basket the way he was defensively, um, the idea of having that kind of performance and shooting well, and then a day or two later to get the news about being suspended for a substance is just brutal. And, you know, it's interesting because he is, you know, he's so skilled offensively and 
you know, it's not to put down Aaron Baines because I think Aaron Baines can do some things offensively that um, that a lot of people can't at his position, but he's not Aiton. And, you know, Kaminsky, similarly, you know, has a skill set that is rare for someone his size, but he's not Aiton. And I, I just think that um, the way they play offensively probably has to be a little bit different with different um, objectives, really, without Aiton being there. Uh, it forces them to rely a lot more on Booker, which I'm sure he has no problem with. But <laughs> it just it, it just gives them a much different look. And, you know, quite frankly, you don't want to have to um, you don't want to have to sideline someone who's like a developing, a growing, developing player who could develop into a star um, for a third of the season if you don't have to. And that's kind of what they're looking at right now. Yeah, for sure. And longtime listeners of this podcast know any mention of Aaron Baines triggers me based on that Celtic Sixers series from a couple of years ago. But yes, he, he has been named the starter, at least tonight in, in uh, Aiton's absence. And it'll be interesting to see how he fares in that role. Because, I mean, that was, if nothing else, it gave them a dependable backup center. And, you know, if calamity struck, like, I don't think anyone expected this or this early. Uh, but if Aiton went down with an injury or whatever reason, um, they did have now a dependable potential starting center in in Baines. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, they're playing the Nuggets uh, tonight, which doesn't seem to bode well for them. But, you know, it, at least for one night, they gave their fans reason for hope. Um, and more, let's turn to the other side of that game with the Sacramento Kings, who not only, you know, lose by 29 points, mm. But Marvin Bagley is now out four to six weeks with a fractured thumb as well. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not great. I, I will say this. There is a silver lining, hopefully, uh, if the Kings do it accurately, and that's to slide Barnes up to the four mm-hmm. and, and play Bogdan Bogdanovich more at the three. Uh, he's kind of disgruntled. They offered him a contract extension, and the, the max that they could offer him, and he rightly declined because that was far below his his value. I think they offered fifty one point two million over four years, um, and they were limited in that regard. So he, he can get more. That's why he said no. But he didn't. He doesn't want to be a six man. He wants to start. He wants to have a bigger role, and now an opportunity at least to to showcase him in that. Uh, so if you run with Fox and, and Heald and Bogdanovich at the one, two, three, you can make up for the scoring in the starting lineup. Then the question becomes, what do you get off the bench? Is it going to be a defensive oriented bench instead? Maybe. I mean, you have Trevor Reese there, but he's 34, I believe. So how much can he sustain playing like a key role off the bench? He's, he's no Iggy. Uh, there are just so many questions up in the air with this team as well. I mean, by re-signing Harrison Barnes to the deal that he got, if that's going to end up like excluding Bogdanovich from the books a year from now, that's going to look really bad. Mm-hmm. If anything, I'm hoping we get more Rashawn Holmes out of this. That would be great. I, yeah. I'm a big Holmes believer. I, I mean, I think he was he, he got a great contract as well, like two years, ten million total. Mm-hmm. I, I think he will easily outperform that. The question is, though, I mean, he, he's pretty much a center at this point. Like, I don't yeah. think he, he can slide down to the four. Uh, he, I don't think he's nimble enough. No. Yeah, he, he should be a center, and he is very mistake prone. So the question is whether how tolerant Luke Walton is of, you know, if he blows a rotation, how many times can he do that before he gets the quick whistle? Right. That, that I don't know. But, yeah, yeah. At least not the start to the season that Kings fans were hoping for. Um, 
And speaking of which, since we've we've gone 20 minutes now without really mentioning the Lakers, so I think it's now fair to bring up the Lakers uh, because they were, you know, the he- really the headliner of the actual opening night Tuesday night. Unfortunately, because of the Zion injury, took some luster from that Pelicans Raptors matchup. But Mort, I will throw you that one in a second. Um, Chris, did anything stand out to you with the Lakers? Um, as a as a big concern moving forward, or do you think it's just like you know again the Clippers are entered the season as the title favorite. The Lakers played them close for most of the game. Like the Lakers should feel good about where they are. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think that game was. I mean, again, you don't want to overreact too much, positive or negative, with any of these first few games. But if I'm the Lakers, I mean, the concerns I had about them were exactly what came up in that game. Uh, you can go any number of directions with this, but I mean, KCP had a horrendous box score. Uh, I mean, I can't remember what he was, but he, he didn't make a shot. Um, you know, he just, he's not useful if he's not making shots generally. I mean, he's not enough of a ball handler. And I remember the day, I'm trying to remember which signing they had. It might've been after they got Danny Green and then I think they might've locked him in and then locked in Jared Dudley and my, my thing was this, and I, I said this initially, it wasn't that profound, but I remember getting shouted down. And it's like this awkward hesitation you have, which I guess is good as a reporter, where you don't want to be too reactionary. But like generally speaking, we have a take when a team signs a player or when a team starts to fill out their roster. And my initial take as they started to fill out that roster when they didn't get Kawhi was like anybody wants Danny Green. Danny Green's a good player. Um mm-hmm. The right price, he's a great player. Um, but after a while, you start to look at their signings, and you know you might like the player, but say to yourself, even though this is a good player and this isn't a bad number that they got this player for, at what point do you start addressing this problem? And I guess my issue with the Lakers now for two years has been the positional stuff, where last year it was very clear to anyone who had eyes that they didn't have enough shooting. And mm-hmm. you can let Magic or you can let Rob Palenka or – you know, fans that that have blogs or anything kind of try to explain away the issue of their lack of shooting. And then when it all comes down to at the end of the season, you look up and they had, I think they were tied for the worst three point shooting team in the league as far as percentage. And so then they go totally in the opposite direction where they get all the shooting that they need theoretically this summer, but they have no ball handling. And, (laughs) And I remember tweeting something to that effect and getting pushback from diehards. So, like, I mean, it's not everybody. It's just a handful of people. But, you know, pushback saying, like, well, you know, Davis is going to have the ball in his hands a lot, so you don't really need ball handling. And DeMarcus Cousins is going to have the ball in his hands a lot. DeMarcus Cousins gets hurt before the season even starts. (laughs) And you look at the guys they've got, and I guess my critique, again, was just kind of like, okay, it's great that you're going to have LeBron handling the ball, but that I just kind of feel like at this point in his career – he needs to be transitioning into something that has him handling the ball less so that you save his legs, particularly mm-hmm. if Davis gets hurt then LeBron becomes your main scoring option again. Um, I just didn't like that. And now, you know, it's like we're hearing about Rondo taking, you know, the role as the other ball handler, which we knew that was going to have to be the case because they don't have other people. But it, it just, I just kind of feel like it was such an obvious thing. And, if LeBron is creating for them and they're not hitting shots other than Danny Green, it's going to be a problem. So that was problematic to me 
Um, some of the plus minus stuff, you know, from opening night, that was interesting too. Basically the question of like, are you going to be able to play Davis and, um, and why am I JaVale at the same time? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and whether or not that's in your best interest to do that. Does Davis need to play more center? Um, so some of these things don't shock me. You know, like I, I just think defensively they're they're okay. Um, you know, I think they have times where they're going to be able to put good defensive lineups out there. But I just wonder about the ball handling and, and whether or not that puts too much pressure on LeBron. His plus minus numbers are totally different when depending on whether he's on the floor with Rondo. And so if Rondo's going to be your starting point guard for large chunks of the season – I just kind of wonder if they've learned from their mistakes last year to some extent. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not totally concerned, but I didn't I don't really have that much faith in the Lakers as far as being like a true, true contender. If they don't address some of those things, at least not when you watch how the Clippers played that night on top of the fact that, again, they're going to get Paul George back as well. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Rondo because Dave McMenamin of ESPN has been <laughs> kind of breathlessly updating the Rondo developments in the last couple days. And it has been, you know, we don't know if he's going to be active tonight, but Vogel has come out and said that Rondo is going to be the starting point guard when he comes back. Not necessarily every game, uh, but they're at least, you know, I think the headline on Dave's story was like, they're parking the LeBron at point guard experiment after one game, which to me, that seems a bit overreactionary, just because, I mean, Chris, as you said, they really don't have other ball handlers. So what are they going to do if they put Rondo and LeBron in the starting lineup? What happens when those guys go to the bench? You still have the same problem. It seems like, to me, it, it, it should be more of a stagger situation where, like, those guys are going to overlap at some point. You can't totally, you know, LeBron's going to play 35-plus minutes. Rondo is going to play at least 20 to 25 by nature, they're just going to have to play together a little bit. But how would you address that lineup construction once Rondo is back and once Kyle Kuzma is back, who also missed uh, opening night? Probably by banging my head against the wall. Just for that. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I, to me, it wasn't an obvious choice to bring back Rondo in the first place. I mean, I, I guess, but I, I just wasn't that impressed he has moments for sure where he looks worthy of doing that but again that's what I'm saying where to me I I just think there might have been other options out there but I think it was also kind of a ramification of having to wait out the Kawhi situation and um Mm. you know that you had the money but that you couldn't fill that space um and that was where I thought you know where I thought the Clippers had done some really smart stuff where keep in mind they traded for Mo Harkless yes. as they were waiting on all that. And I remember a lot of us saying, wow, well, they, they just did that. And was, you know, was that stupid? Was it smart? Um, because I want to say at one point they did it and they did it. And then it, it took away their ability to, didn't it take away their ability to sign a second star uh, outright at the I time? At least so. Thinking. And so then they made a trade. For Paul George, which opened up the space. But I remember just thinking, man, like it, on the one hand, maybe that was dumb. But on the other hand, maybe it's really smart. Either way, you're getting a, a good player. And right. granted, Harkless is not really a ball handler. But just looking at it, like they kind of fill a need and they, they address the depth issue by doing that. And I, I just kind of think, you know, maybe the Lakers didn't really have that luxury 
and that's fine. Um, but just, you know, stuff like that, when you're able to act kind of proactively as opposed to having to just wait. And, and, and in fairness to the Lakers, they had a contingency plan. Like they, they had literally all of three minutes after Kawhi's deal with Paul George was announced um, that the Clippers were going to get those two immediately after you saw the reports coming in about them getting Danny Green. And so right. they absolutely had a contingency set up. It's not to call them dumb. It's not to say that they weren't thinking. It's just to say that I think that's kind of where the Clippers have them beat is from a depth standpoint, from a ball handling standpoint, where, you know, the Clippers have multiple guys that can, you know, that can fill in here, that could start easily. And I just think the Lakers, one thing going awry, I just kind of think would, especially if, it, you know, if it's LeBron, and I think that goes without saying, it just takes them out of contender status so quickly. And it makes mm. you really nervous to really put your hopes and dreams into a team like that um, when they are so thin it's something that, you know, the best teams tend to have three or four ball handlers. And when I look at the Lakers, they have one that I feel really good about. And <laughs> right. he's a much older person, and he's someone who has, you know, as much mileage on his legs as anybody. Granted, he's coming into the year fresh because he didn't play the summer. But I, I just – it's hard to feel really good about that, and that was how I felt going in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the Lakers' big hope, other than a midseason trade, which might be difficult just based on how much they gave up for Anthony Davis. Andre Iguodala is waiting out there, possibly, if the Grizzlies don't trade him and just buy him out. You know, there there are still rumblings that he will end up on the Lakers, and that would make, I mean, that would at least address some of the concerns you just talked about, Chris. But I, I think it's very fair to say the concerns that most people had about the Lakers coming into the year were right on display Tuesday night. And again, you know, the Clippers might have just exacerbated those issues because they are rightfully among the title favorites, if not the number one favorite coming into the year. Um, And to the depth issue, I'm going to shamelessly plug something that I'm writing for the basketball writers right now. Um, You can check it out at bballwriters.com. I'm not sure if it will be live by the time you listen to this, but it'll be up in the next day or two. They have just done, you know, like... They got Kawhi, they got Paul George, that took all of the attention this summer, and rightfully so. But they have done such a good job with moves on the margins, too. Even dating back to the trade deadline, getting Zubach for Mike Muscala, getting Jamichael Green for Avery Bradley, both of whom they then re-signed to very reasonable contracts this summer. Taking the one-year flyer on Patrick Patterson, who, you know, like, whatever, he's not anything special, but... He's been just a nice fill-in body for them while Paul George recovers, and he had 20 points against the Warriors. You know, all of these moves on the side, the the Harkless deal in particular, like, they gave up nothing. They gave up cash, and they got Harkless, who was a good player, who started 50-plus games for a Blazers team that went to the Western Conference Finals last year, and they got a pick, which they then flipped in the George deal. Like, they've just done such a good job. They Like, I want the Clippers to win this year, only because I feel like they deserve to be rewarded. Like their front office has just done such a good job that they deserve good things to happen to them. Whereas the Warrior or the the Lakers like fell ass backwards into LeBron because his he family likes L.A. and he wants to make movies. Like they uh, they, they frustrate me. Mort, I want to hit the other side of Tuesday night's games because we have before you do. Yeah. Before you do, can can I chime in on the Lakers as well? Because yeah. there's an aspect we haven't covered yet, which I also think is is kind of fascinating. So we know that AD has, you know, every year he has a history 
of getting that, you know, the Twitter updates uh, where it says, you know, 80 has left the floor. He won't <laughs> yeah. come back because like right. a sprained finger or whatnot. So the injury implications, even if it's not long term, is also interesting because if he has some of those, you know, a bad fall or he tweaks a finger or something and those are close games that they lose. I mean, I'm not saying that they're going to miss the playoffs. Uh, I mean, it's LeBron and AD. You can't count them out in that sense. But that could affect their long-term success tremendously. Um, and and what, what do they really have in terms of the depth, like Chris alluded to? Like, yeah, sure, you can plug in Kyle Kuzma, but they need him even with Davis healthy. I mean, th- there's just nothing there. If one of LeBron, Davis, or Kyle Kuzma goes down for an extended period of time, it's it's practically game over. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you could, I mean, you could say that about a lot of teams. I feel like, like if Jokic goes well, down, not the, not the Clippers though. Well, yeah, the Clippers are the Clippers are a rare exception. I would argue to some extent the Sixers are as well, but with one very glaring exception, it's not Joel Embiid this year. Yeah, but but the point is, like the M- NBA teams prioritize depth this summer, yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to previous season where it was all about star hunting. I mean, we are seeing an NBA right now where depth is just so much more prioritized, whereas the Lakers are still sort of locked into that old-school mindset of stars, stars, stars. It's la-la land. <laughs> and ultimately, it could be their downfall. Yeah, that would not surprise me. So let's hit, Yeah, let's hit the Raptors, because you and I debated going into the year about Pascal Siakam in particular, and... Mm-hmm whether he should or should not get a max extension right away, whether they should wait until next summer. They ended up giving him the four-year max. And my God, did he look like he deserved it that first game. Yes. So obviously on the merit of 38 total minutes played this year, I won that conversation. (laughs) You really might have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what's so great about Pascal, which I think that was the big issue when he got the contract extension and before that even when they lost Kawhi was, is is he a guy you can count on to hunt shots? Can he take over the number one, that number one role? He seemed like to be more of a complimentary player next to next to uh, Kawhi, you know, a, a perfect one of the sort. But could he be that guy? And based on one game so, so far, yes. I mean, he was actively hunting shots both, you know, from away from the basket and around the basket. He was getting to the free throw line. He was rebounding like a maniac, pushing the ball at every turn. I, I do have some concerns about him being able to keep up that energy level because he he was like you know he was going 110 percent which is impossible so and eventually over an 82 game schedule i don't think that is that is going to be a theme for him but just the fact that he can be relied upon to at least take those you know 15 16 shots a game like he took 26 here in game one that's that's encouraging that's what they need him to be at this point and this at this stage in 2021 when they're going to go star hunting you know you can point to a guy like Siakam and say hey here's a guy who's earning yes 130 million but he can get his own shots he's still one of the best defenders you know versatile defenders at the four slot he can play make he he, he can get to the free throw line he's somewhat efficient i mean there's just so much to like in him but what i really took away from that game is Fred Van Vliet is a yeah. baller. I mean, yeah. we knew that coming in, but he seems to have been taking a step up. Um, he was just so much more aggressive than I've seen him before, not just from the outside, but as well as going to the rim at at 
six foot nothing and just coming in and uh, he he he's mesmerizing really the way that he can manufacture shots for himself under the basket and and twist his body and and hit threes both off the dribble and spot ups get to the free throw line initiate the offense i mean he's going to be huge for them i i, I have no idea what kind of contract he's going to be looking at at the end of this year Mm-hmm. But you know, when you and I were talking about him a couple of months back, we were like, hmm, maybe he gets somewhat the same contract as before in the nine to ten million dollar range. <laughs> you know, this year he might play well enough to double that. Yeah, I mean, if Terry Rozier just got almost twenty million dollars a year, right. I would much rather <laughs> give Fred VanVleet Terry Rozier, who didn't even play in crunch time the first game <laughs> in a close game right. against the Bulls. Uh, yeah, no, I would like to congratulate myself. Between picking uh, in my fantasy basketball draft, it was either DeLon Wright or Fred VanVleet, and I picked DeLon Wright because I'm stupid, did no preparation this year. So <laughs> egg on my face all around with regard to the Raptors. But that game was fun. Like the Pelicans yeah. justified our very high league pass ranking for them. They're just going to be a without Sion, man. I know. And with the kill Alexander Walker shooting one of 10, like they just have so many guys. Nicolo Melli. Like, holy mm-hmm. crap. I mean, four or five from three, 14 points in 20 minutes. Like, they, they just might be one of the deepest teams in the league. And they, you know, they played 12 guys. Yeah. The Raptors played eight. They played 12 and not a blowout. I mean, a game that went to overtime. So it's going to be tough for Alvin Gentry to cut that rota- rotation down a little bit if he plans on doing so. Um, well, I, I mean, there's just so many guys. They're like Frank Jackson, a guy who was more or less just ignored all throughout the summer, which I always thought was weird because young players do have a tendency to get better. Yet right. no one was really talking about Frank Jackson. Now he's coming. He's a legitimate NBA rotation player. He showed that in the preseason as well. He just his body looks a little bit stronger, a little bit more lean. He looks like he has a pep in his step. The shooting is better. Like he's more aggressive. He feels more at ease. I mean, this roster is is legit. And if Zion comes back and is healthy and you know plays much like he did in preseason, albeit you know he can't produce that type of efficiency, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean in terms of aggressiveness and and getting to the basket and whatnot. You know, this team could easily be a playoff contender. And, and yeah. look, we didn't even see the best of Drew Holiday. I mean, he was, right. what, 6 of 15, or 1 from 5 from downtown. He had 13 points. Like, he's going to bounce back. He's looking at that box score right now going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially with the Warriors now looking vulnerable, with the Kings looking vulnerable, that 8 seed – Mm-hmm. is looking more up for grabs than we thought it might be going into the season. And yeah, if the, I mean, depending on Zion's timeline, there's no shame in losing an overtime game to the Raptors. The Raptors, even without Kawhi, are still going to be very good this year. So, right. yeah, I mean, it, the Pelicans play the Mavericks tonight. That's going to be a really fascinating game to see how it plays out. And let's not overlook the fact that, that Houston could be pretty bad as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know you're laughing because of Westbrook, but look, I'm, I'm still saying... You know, we're talking about depth here. They have none. Yeah. They have so little. I mean, that's not two injuries away. They're one injury away from disaster. I'm glad you brought up the Rockets because I was about to ask Chris uh, about that Bucks Rockets game because I did not. I wanted to spare the Russell Westbrook slander for one episode. That's fair. Because he was good. He, I mean, right? Like he, he. That was probably as. Good as you could have hoped, especially coming out of the preseason where he had a zillion turnovers and shot pretty inefficiently. 
Okay. If your criteria shooting seven for 17 in a loss is good. All right. It's better than two of 13, which is what his bearded front quarter back. I love your standards. <laughs> your standards are fantastic. <laughs> but, but Chris, uh, what stood out to you in that Bucks Rockets game on either side? Cause we also had, Oh, the reigning MVP drop a 30 point triple double in 28 minutes in a win. Yep. I mean, I think at a certain point, we just have to kind of acknowledge, and I think we would be willing to do it. I don't know if the, the Rockets would as quickly. Um, the, the Bucks obviously kind of have a, a very effective way of guarding James Harden that I think they have the personnel to do that other teams don't. And, um, you know, at this point, Harden, even when he's gotten his point totals, has needed to take so many shots to get there. And, um you know, it'll be interesting to see now. I think it was a little bit harder for Chris Paul to say, okay, I'm going to just take over here. Um, and he would be less reluctant to do that because he's Chris Paul. Now Harden, when he's not playing well, has a teammate that will not think twice about the idea of taking over. And sometimes when Harden isn't struggling, Russ may still <laughs> over. So, I mean, that's the interesting thing here, I think, is just kind of what happens um, when Russ is put in a situation where he either wants to shoot or has to shoot, and how effective can he be in an offense where you're relying on guys to to be efficient? I mean, on, on the one hand, um, the fact that the Rockets found themselves kind of still in it with Harden playing that poorly, partly because Harden is just so efficient regardless of how he's shooting because of all the visits to the line. Um, you know, I, they, they were pretty close considering how poorly certain guys were shooting. I mean, Gordon was, was pretty awful um, for long stretches. So, so I, I don't make too much of it. Part of me kind of hates when you have the East-West matchups between two really good teams this mm-hmm. early in a season because you're only going to get two of them. Um, and so I, I also have that in mind, too, where it kind of sucks for those of us that write previews and stuff for NBA Finals matchups or something when the two matchups happen so early in the season that they're not relevant by the time you get to the playoffs. But I didn't make too, too much of it other than, like you said, Westbrook – actually played pretty well, um, you know, for what I think we were expecting, getting used to a new offense. He was kind of the one carrying them through long stretches of the fourth quarter until they got to the very end of the game because nobody else was doing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I was pleasantly surprised by him. Mildly concerned from the Bucks. Other, you know, Giannis was great, but Middleton was four of 16 from the field and just you know that that's always the concern with the Bucks is like, yeah, they're they're really deep. They have a lot of great players, but do they have that number two star, you know, to give next to Giannis? Middleton is being paid like that, but that was not a not a great you know. This is my 170 billion dollar time to live up to it. Not a great debut for that. But that's the concern. That's the concern, and I I think the thing is. It's, it's, it's funny. It's not talked about on a wide scale anymore, but I really feel like the biggest swing player that I think really effectively kind of could have changed or will change the likelihood, the probability, whatever you want to call it, of winning a title was Malcolm Brogdon. Um, because I think about him, I don't think that the Pacers all of a sudden are going to win a title, but I think that you know if we look at the Bucks this year and they come up just short, I think a lot of people would be smart to kind of point at the Brogdon uh, loss, the loss of Brogdon, trading him away as the thing. Because now what it does, not for right now, but in general, it puts more pressure on 
Eric Bledsoe when he's back and he's healthy um, to perform consistently, which I kind of feel like if you needed one word to define Brogdon, it's consistent. Um, and I think it's so important. You know what you're going to get from Giannis every night, offensively, defensively. You know he's going to play well. He's either going to win you a game or keep you in one. So who can put you over the top? And when the rest of your guys are Brogdon and Lopez and, you know, and then you've got um, Middleton, you feel good about that. But when you take Brogdon out of the equation and then Middleton has to take an even bigger role, especially without Bledsoe there, um, it, it puts a lot of pressure on him for something where he can be fantastic, but he can also be very quiet and you can forget that he's there or he can just have a quiet night where he doesn't shoot particularly well. He's a good player. He's a solid player. But I, there's a difference between having to be the clear number two and kind of having to be a 2A, 2B with somebody else like a Brogdon that can split that role with you. And I think now, if and when he's asked to be the clear second guy consistently, that may be difficult for him. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure we know the answer to it yet, but it, I, I'm at a point where there's no way he's going to outplay that contract and be worth right. more than what he's paid. I mean, I, I understand why you kept him. You probably needed to keep him. But my goodness, it's a lot of money. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I, I know he's an all-star on a technical level, but he's not really an all-star in terms of offensive production. He's kind of more of a well-rounded player. And frankly, you had to pay him because you don't want it to look a certain way to Giannis before he's got to make his decision about whether he wants to be there. But um, they're, they're going to be tested with that for sure. And I think they're relying a lot on their depth. And not just that, but they're going to be relying a lot on their older depth of guys that were much, much better players two or three years ago than they are right now between Corver and Matthews, who, who actually played pretty decently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, a, it's just a, it's a weird team in that sense because they're not traditional as far as the sorts of roles that guys will take. And they're not traditional as far as like your role guys are not star players or star role players anymore. They were a couple of years ago. So it, it'll, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm getting – I think the Bucks, and the Sixers are similar and with, like, Chris Middleton and Tobias Harris are going to be a Spider-Man meme all year where it's like, I get why you had to pay those guys as much as you did, but <laughs> both of them are not going to live up to those deals, and I think they're both going to get scapegoated very quickly if – you know, even, like, I saw on Sixers Twitter on Wednesday, like, even in a 14-point win in which Tobias Harris hits a big shot in the fourth quarter, like, the first three quarters – he was getting slandered left and right. So I want to dissuade people listening. Like I, I get why it happens, why when someone gets a lot of money, then you have these expectations. It happened with Iguodala in Philly, too, and Philly fans turn on him for that reason as well. Sometimes these contracts just get handed out because like that's that, that market price for these guys. They're not going to live up to these deals, but you have to like separate how much they're earning from their role on the team. And if you can do that, you'll appreciate what they bring to the table. But if you're expecting Chris Middleton, because he's making $170 million now, to be a top 20 player, it's probably not going to happen, and you're probably going to be disappointed. So just yeah. don't do not do it. You just stole my point there. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the max contract is a problem. It, yeah. It's just uh, if you're looking at it from a traditional sense, like a max contract should be somewhat re- reserved to like five guys. Yeah. And, and yeah. at the end of the day, you know, you have two, sometimes three players on the same team earning something like that. So it's it's just not 
it's a problem, and I, I think eventually the league will have to look at it because it's a double-edged sword. Like because Chris, you just mentioned it, like with with Giannis as well. Like it would be a bad look if Chris Middleton wasn't re-signed. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you're also doing Giannis a disservice if Middleton ends up, you know, being producing at a significantly lower level than what his salary uh, dictates, because then you're not helping Giannis, then you're actually hurting him by having created financial inflexibility on your own behalf. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure what the solution is, but right. it's you can you can definitely look at it from several points of view here. It's, yeah. It's- and then that honestly is where I generally don't know what the answer is. It's normally when you're in those um, those bird rights sort of situations where you can go above and beyond to pay someone and you would lose them for nothing. I remember when I covered the Knicks several years ago, they were coming off a 54-1 season that nobody saw coming. They were the number two seed, and J.R. Smith was a free agent that year, a restricted free agent. And at that time, you know, the scale was so different. I think the most that they could pay him was like six or seven million. But if they didn't pay him that six or seven million a year, and if they didn't pay him that, they're going to lose him for nothing. And, you know, the Knicks didn't even give it a second thought of not paying him. But, you know, because they couldn't have done anything else with that money. But they they did it feeling they had to. And generally speaking, you know, if that was just free money that you could have used another way. Um, then you probably would, you know, mm-hmm. if you, you probably could get, I mean, even if it was just to pay Brogdon, um, mm-hmm. you know, if it didn't look a certain way and, uh, you know, especially with Middleton having been an all-star again, you know, a very different sort of all-star, but an all-star nonetheless, you just, you can't let guys like that go, but there are times where you look at it and you're like, well, look, if egos were out of it and if, you know, if you had a guarantee that Giannis was going to stay, especially for a team that is conscious about luxury taxes more than most teams because of how small a market it is. Um, absolutely. You would try to find another alternative, but that I would say more often than not, that's where I kind of find myself. It's hard to be overly critical of a team that keeps somebody like Middleton at that money because no one else has a suggestion for how else you would really go about doing that either. Um, what you would replace that person with or that player with. Um, since you can't take that money and go out and go get another type of free agent with it. Right. Yeah. It, it's threading that, that needle between like getting guys on contracts that they can actually live up to and then not losing them once their contracts run out. Like, frankly, I think it's going to be a problem with the Clippers after this year. I, you know, they Pat Patterson's on a one year deal. I believe Montrez Harrell is coming off of his deal this year and he's in line for a gigantic raise. Mm. Jamichael Green has a second year player option. Like all the depth that we talked about earlier could fade away after this year. If these guys, you know, go on to win a title, they're going to expect to be paid significantly more than they, they were this past season. So it's really tough to build a championship team. That's ultimately the bottom line. You have to get really lucky. Or if you're the Warriors, you have to have a ton of cap space. The year the salary cap spikes $24 million and you have to walk into Kevin Durant. Remember when I was critical of Zach Levine's deal? Yeah. I'm over that now. <laughs> you should be. I was As critical a- of it too. You aren't, you aren't alone in that. But, you know, the, how quickly our perceptions change of these deals. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, what would be more accurate and what I, I think, you know, maybe I'll make the suggestion to somebody next year on my side at ESPN, like having something that lays out what percentage of the cap a deal is taking up instead, mm-hmm. looking at it that way is probably more useful 
Um, you know, and, and, and frankly, even with the Levine deal, I think some of the same logic is in play there where you just think about the idea that um, Levine was kind of the, at least at the time, was kind of being billed as the crown jewel of what you got back in that Jimmy trade. Um, and so the idea of giving up on him and not throwing that money at him to keep him after the, the Kings made that offer would look bad. Optically, it would look bad. And, you know, frankly, someone who you know is going to give you 20 a game um, is young and young enough to still continue to improve before he's hit his prime. So I, I understood it both ways. I mean, at the time, I think there's a lot of pearl clutching that happens um, generally when, you know, we're talking about so much money that these teams have anyway, um, and which is why it would be more helpful to kind of look at it on a scale as far as what percentage someone is getting as opposed to just the dollar figure, um, because that number is changing every year anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was right there with you. Yeah, I thought it was kind of crazy that the Bulls were going to do that, particularly for someone that wasn't good on defense. But at this age, I mean, you can get so much better at so many different things. So. I think it was compounded by the fact that they also gave Jabari that contract. That oh, was always going to be bad. For sure. The Jabari thing still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, but but this, that said, they're both really young. And I think it's easier. Like, Middleton's not young. Um, right. From that vantage point anymore. And so I at least understand it when it's a team that's not quite ready yet that they are still trying to establish who's their star. Um, if this guy is going to be a star, can we stomach the idea of him going out and becoming on somewhere else where we still don't have one ourselves? I get the idea of doing that. I, I think, if I'm being honest, I think the Bulls at times have cared too much about having their hometown guys. Yeah. I think that was a factor with Cade. I think it was a factor with, if you remember, years ago, one of the only teams that was really interested in trading with the Sixers for Okafor was the Bulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always had an interest in bringing guys home. And I don't know if it's that, you know, hell, I have an uncle recently that had a health issue come up. And they talked about wanting to get him home because he might recover better from his surgery at home as opposed to being in a, in a, um, a rehab facility um, mm. after his surgery. And, you know, it's like the Bulls try to do that same sort of thing where they think bringing somebody home will make them play better, make them develop better, make the fans buy tickets at a higher rate. I don't know what it is, but it's just a weird logic when you're talking about it for certain people. But when you're talking about trying to still find a star or someone that could develop into one where maybe other teams have given up on him too early, maybe you get him into your system and he works better. I think most of us knew with Jabari it wasn't going to work in Chicago. Yes. I think that was rooted in the positional stuff uh, mm. where – they were going to try playing with small forward, which we know that's a bad idea. Mm. So I, I think it, it, it depends. But with Middleton's role, we know that he has that sort of value to the Bucks and maybe a handful of other teams. But like, like I said, part of it is leverage that he essentially had just in knowing that if you don't give me this money, it's going to look bad to the guy that you need to keep here. Um, and that absolutely had a role in it. Um, I think you can make the argument a little bit more easily with him that you need him more so than with Brogdon, you know, Brogdon being a guy that didn't make the all-star team that is younger. You already have another point guard that you just signed to a deal who has a bigger name around the league probably than Brogdon does. But I do think Brogdon, like I, I was very firm on the idea. I thought Brogdon, if you had thrown the money that you threw at Horford at Brogdon, that that might have been a game changer in the same way that you're, especially there where you'd be taking something away from the bucks, but also gaining something and putting less pressure on Simmons to have to handle the ball and more spacing from that standpoint. You know, he was coming from an offense where 
Brogdon didn't have the ball in his hands the majority of the time anyway, so that's not going to be a big adjustment for him going somewhere like Philly. I felt really strongly about Brogdon and just how much he would have improved a lot of different teams. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of could use a guy that can handle the ball but is also off ball but is also big enough to guard wings, um, who can get to the basket. He's just a really cerebral player, and I kind of feel like those are at a premium when, you, when you're on the doorstep of winning a title or getting there. For sure. And now he's in Indiana, where the title is a long <laughs> way from waiting. I do like the fit, though. I, I think yeah. the old people badly needed somebody who can do those things, who's a good off-ball shooter. Um, their offense is just a, a, a tire fire without uh, Oladipo. And I think him being there, he can pick up some of that slack. He can. He, he doesn't have to change his game entirely once Oladipo's back, either. I think he's just someone that's like good enough at everything, and they needed somebody like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I do agree with you that there, it doesn't make them a contender. But, um, you know, just like the last couple of years, I don't think they'll finish as a three seed. I can see the Pacers finishing as a four if Oladipo is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Lamb pickup for them. I thought that was one of the best signings of the summer. Um, I thought it was one of the dumbest moves of the summer for the, the Hornets. <laughs> walk with that. Same with Kemba. Um, yeah. But we'll see. We'll get an opportunity to see how all this plays out. No, yeah. I, I'm high on on Indiana as well. I'm more like in terms of going if the alternative was going to Philly, who's that much closer to a championship. It's it's like in that logic, like the going to uh, Indiana specifically, like they are still a couple of years away, and they probably need a Miles Turner breakout to really become relevant in, in terms of making like a finals push. So like I would agree with you. Like on the surface, I probably if, if Philly were keen on it, I, I probably would have gone with with Brockton over Horford, just for a fit issue. But at the same time, when you look at Horford and Philly and defensively, they're just it's so damn intriguing. I, I get wanting to add it, but yeah, sure. yeah. I I can speak for the Sixers Twitter representatives here and say that Brogdon was definitely among the top targets on Sixers Twitter, but yeah. no one. No one foresaw this entire summer happening with the sign and trade with Jay Rich and then bringing Horford in. Um, and I mean, weakening. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you're totally right. You know, the Bucks are the chief threat to the Sixers this year. But had they not taken Horford away from the Celtics, I, you know, the Celtics, you could argue, would probably be right up in that mix, too. Um, yeah. And you could argue now that, I mean, they're still probably the next biggest threat. You know, um, some people would argue that. I, I could easily see Toronto being that team, too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's going to be, regardless, I think there's going to be a very big drop-off between one and two, and, and then when you get to, down to three, whoever that third team is. Um, I don't know yet whether we'll see that team as a real contender to win the East. Um, I think normally somebody always kind of emerges. It, mm-hmm. it rarely is it just a two-team race, but um, but somebody will, will take that spot. It, it feels like it'll be either Toronto or Boston. And so if they had kept Horford, um, you know, and at one point it looked like I remember the reporting around that being really strange that, that yes. Horford at one point was out and then it looked like, you know, maybe they're going to try to make this work. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, totally. Uh, <laughs> right. And so it no, just makes me wonder what was happening behind the scenes there. But um, but yeah, either way, somebody will, will take that spot and, and, you know, maybe somebody will finish within five or six games of those first two teams. And I'd, I'm interested to know who that is. Um, you know, I the horn is incoming, baby. <laughs> I was going to say, there's definitely no tampering involved with the Sixers and Horford, what, despite what the Celtics would leave you to believe. And there is also no tampering with the Celtics and Kemba, of course. Right, exactly. 
Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, frankly, like Indiana, I think you guys are right. They probably won't finish as a three seed, but they strike me as like a five or six seed just because of Oladipo's injury. I think if Oladipo were healthy, I think I probably would pick them as my three. But uh, they strike me as like the five or six seed that no team's going to want to draw in the first round. And, and you know, hopefully they stay above six because I think, you know, if you're the Philly or Milwaukee and you're going to be with those top two seeds, you sure as hell don't want to see Indiana at seven or eight. It's a much tougher first round matchup than you would hope to get, especially coming out of the East. Um, We need to hit the rookie stuff quickly, but first, since we just hit on the Sixers Celtics, let's any big takeaways from that or did it go as you expected? It went as as pretty much expected. (laughs) You're damn right it did. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I look at Boston go, I mean, taking a step down uh, in terms of talent this year. I I think there are some intriguing pathways for them to be better, especially in terms of Jason Tatum's improved shot selection and just him improving as a, as a player. I'm still not entirely sold on the Jalen Brown extension, but I mean, he's, he's there as, as a piece long-term if he, Finds a little bit more consistency. I, Boston has a lot of potential. It's just about figuring out what path to choose. I still thought it was weird. I love the Kemba addition, but I still thought like they just continued this theme of having one foot into the, like, the development pool mm-hmm. and one in the win now column, which I get it. They want to be competitive as Tatum and, and, and Brown improve and develop, but I don't know. It, it, it can go both ways, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, the bright side for Boston, if you're looking for silver linings, Gordon Hayward looked good. Yeah. Kemba, Kemba's not going to shoot four of 18 from the field most nights. Like He's also not going to face Josh Richardson and Matisse Thibel, who lived up to his preseason hype. Like The kid's just a monster defensively. He's really, really annoying. And You're not going to shut up about Thibel for the rest of the season, are you? No, no, no. definitely not. I'm All also right. not going to shut up about Ben Simmons, who I've been saying it since media day and training camp. I don't know what happened this summer, but he sounds different. He looks different. Like something clicked for him, and we saw it opening night. I'm, I'm really excited to see. Like Embiid played 23 minutes in the game they won by 14. You could not say that last year. Every time he stepped off the floor, they got murdered. Having Horford in there... Uh, just and Kylo Quinn, like having real backup setters is such a game changer for them. But then also just aggressive Simmons is, you know, a, a world of difference. So, yes, passed the first test with flying colors. And now you are so aroused happens. right now. <laughs> it, I mean, it was just it was really the first time I've gone into a Sixer Celtics game in three years and didn't have like existential dread hanging over me the whole day. Like I just knew how the game was going to go. And it went exactly as I expected. Even, you know, the first half was close. I think the Sixers were only up one at halftime. But it was just like, nah, the Celtics are, they're having to work too damn hard for every one of these shots. It's going to, the dam is going to break at some point. And the Sixers offense was not good at all. And it's going to be a work in progress for most of the season, I think. But their defense just gives them such a bigger margin of error than they had last year. Like they were just so mediocre defensively last year. And now... Just having this starting lineup and having Horford as the backup center and having Kylo Quinn, having Matisse Thibel. Zaire Smith didn't even play, but hopefully he gets into the rotation at some point. I mean, it would just be such a shock if they didn't have a top three defense this year. And that's going to give them, you know, they're not going to have nearly as many letdowns, I don't think, as they did last year, especially against bad teams. Like being able to corral opposing ball handlers 
is also a world of difference. Kemba did not go up for 60 against them. It was truly shocking. But let's get, get into... it all out of your system, Brian? No, you got 81 more games of it, friend. Sorry. <laughs> uh, let's get quickly into the rookie scale stuff before we go. I'm just going to read the names and the terms. Most of these guys got deals with partial guarantees. So I'm just going to read like the full figure. But keep in mind that, you know, some of them were like partially guaranteed uh, or had it incentives, I should say, to make them look bigger than they actually are. So, Chris. Mort mentioned the Jalen Brown deal is four years, 115 million, 103, I believe is full is guaranteed. Then there's like 4 million in likely bonuses, 8 million in unlikely. Uh, how'd you feel about that deal? It, it felt a little bit rich to me. Um, just because I, I mean, he and Tatum both had really solid initial seasons years with, with the Celtics. And I, I guess for me, and I think this is kind of the question on him, is like, is he going to become a star? Or is he is he bound to be like a, a solid role player for the rest of his career? And all these guys are so young to where I don't think we know the answer yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's a gamble. And it's frankly, it's a bigger gamble than the type we've generally seen because of what Mort was just saying before about the Celtics kind of having one foot in, one foot out. We're not used to seeing them throw this kind of money at their young guys. Um, but they were going to have to make the decision at some point. Um, I was a little surprised at, at how high they went here. Um, it, it's not completely ridiculous, um, particularly because he has big games from time to time and because of how versatile he is. But uh, it was a little richer than what I was expecting Danny Ainge to go uh, with him. Yeah, totally agree. Mort, I know you had a piece at Forbes uh, breaking all of these down. I know you were in the same boat there. Yeah, I had Jalen's uh, contract extension. You know, I had value evaluations on all of them, and I basically deemed it risky. So, Chris, one question: You mentioned like the youth, and we don't really know in terms of where they end up and all that. Can I just point out that Jalen Brown is only one year younger than Andrew Wiggins? Are we we are fairly certain we know where Wiggins are, right? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not. But here's the funny thing about Wiggins, and maybe that sounds controversial that I'm not completely sold on what he is and what he will be. I'm completely sold on the fact that, and and this goes back to what I was saying before about Middleton. I'm sold on the fact that no matter what he does, he can't play outplay his contract. And that's the problem with someone like Wiggins is like, he's a perfectly fine player, but he's not perfectly fine to be a max guy. Um, Right. And so for Brown, I don't think paying him that much leaves a ton of room for upside, but there could be like, if he, he still has time whether you look at it from an age standpoint, like Wiggins isn't so old that he couldn't improve. Uh, I would use Rudy Gay as another example. Like Rudy Gay, now it took him a lot longer, but he now is at a point where he's an efficient player. Um, he still takes shots from mid-range, but he's not quite taking you know the shots that were as difficult. He's not putting everything on his shoulders. So like Wiggins could get there to that sort of you know style of play, I guess. I, now, granted, I think Rudy Gay was always hustling a little bit more defensively and doing other things. But, you know, I'm, I'm not out on the idea of someone like Wiggins ever being productive. I just feel like when you're taking into account the contractual part of it, it's hard to ever get excited about Wiggins because he's clogging up so much of your cap. So Brown, I don't, you know, even if he's around the same age and even if, you know, the perception of him is young, I'm more OK with that because he's taking up so much less money 
than somebody like Wiggins is. And I, it, it leaves me more optimistic about at least the potential of him being worth what he's being paid, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. And I'll, I mean, look, Boston didn't have to ask Jalen Brown to promise to get better. So that's also positive. <laughs> right. At least better than Wiggins. But yes, I, I'm with you guys. It was risky. I get why they did it. They didn't want him to become a restricted free agent because someone was going to max him next year. So they probably saved about $15 million. But yes, he's he his production to date is not worthy of that deal. They are betting on him taking a step forward and just based on the reporting going into the deadline, I think, you know, there was a report that they'd offered like 480. So to get from 480 to four up to 115 was a surprise there. Um, Buddy healed on the other hand, you know, there were reports that they offered for the Kings offered 490. He wanted for 110. They ended up settling at four years, $86 million guaranteed. Eight million in what Woj? I think he described them as like extremely likely bonuses, uh, exceedingly he, reachable bonuses. There we go. Okay, yeah, because when he reported it, he just called it a four-year, ninety-four million dollar deal. So, so whatever. Regardless, eighty-six million guaranteed, up to one hundred six million. Mort, how'd you feel about that one? That was actually my favorite contract just because of the flexibility in it. So, Buddy Healed, if he is going to make the full amount at one hundred six million. Like that's because he's proven to be worth it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, then he'll he'll get the bonuses, he'll get the incentives and all that. Th- then that means he's taking a step up. If not, and he drops all the way back to the 86, then you can sort of live with it. I don't think you will because, like like Boach said, exceedingly reachable like bonuses. So he's probably going to end up with like 94 and maybe a smidge more, which I think is completely fine for a guy who's in his prime. I mean, he's 26. The way that he opens up the floor for Sacramento is just so vital. I, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter go, oh, that's too much for him. Like in isolation, yes, it may be a little bit rich. I totally get that. But what he does for that team in terms of just opening up everything and, and being such a high volume, high efficient three point shooter, that's I mean, that does so much to a team. Yeah. And it's decreasing every year, which I love. I love, love, love when teams do that. I think it was Sam Amick of The Athletic reported he's supposed to take up, I think, like 13.5% of the cap in the final See, year. See, there we go. With, yeah, with Chris's idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Chris, exactly. when your idea gets in, it gets in play, like mention Aaron Gordon as well. The declining deals are just yes. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you have. Darren Fox coming up for an extension. You have Bagley in a couple of years. So they're avoiding, they did it with Harrison Barnes too. They were both descending. So you're avoiding any like mammoth luxury tax payments down the line. So kudos to the Kings salary cap guy because he clearly knows what he's doing. Well, when he's not re-signing Harrison Barnes. (laughs) Right. Uh, DeMontis Sabonis got a four-year deal. I believe it was $77 million, uh, with incentives that can push it up to 85 Uh Chris, it's similar to what Miles Turner got. I think his was like 72 That can go up to 80 So once you factor in inflation with the salary cap growth, basically the same deal. Um, what do you think of that deal? And what do you think of the Sabonis-Turner pairing long-term? Yeah, I mean... So I don't mind the deal in a nutshell, but I think what you just brought up is the, the question I've got, is that they, they still have never quite learned how to coexist um, with that lineup. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that I, I kind of feel like they generally could probably go one direction or the other. I think they're 
hoping that someone will basically kind of show themselves to be the better player of the two. Uh, Turner, obviously, is is much better defensively. I think Sabonis is more consistent offensively. Um, and so, it, you know, if you could kind of, like, marry the two of them as far as their skill sets, you'd have a, a really, really great <laughs> Um But, but that, that's what makes it odd is that um, they know that they're not a free agent destination. So they have to kind of value and, you know, sometimes maybe even overvalue their own guys, their homegrown guys, but they've got two really talented players that just don't play particularly well together. And so, um, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to go higher than what you got Turner for um, because you, you essentially are saying that it's a tie for right now that you don't really know which guy you want. Um, I do think that they're fine though, because if for some reason they were to run into trouble with either, they would find that plenty of teams were open to trading for them. So I I don't think it's a bad deal at all. I think it's fine for both sides. basically. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I'm sure he'll, it does feel like at a certain point they may have to decide between one or the other, but neither of those contracts are prohibitive. Like they'll have no trouble finding a taker for whoever they end up deciding to shop. Mort, I know you're going to like this one. DeJounte Murray, four years, 64 million uh, guaranteed incentives that can push it to 70. Yeah. I mean, look, Deontay is one of the most gifted defensive young, I don't want to say point guard necessarily, just guards in the NBA. He's so versatile, extremely athletic. And if if his ACL injury is, because he's young, is so much more easy to manage long term, that's a great, great contract from the Spurs because that's mm-hmm. a four-year deal. It's not you know a proven two-year, three-year standard. It's like a full four years like, go get it at, at very reasonable money. If he becomes the player that they hope he will be, you know, a, a two-way stud, he had a great debut against the Knicks, this is going to be one of those contracts that we're going to be talking about for the next four years as one of the great bargains in the league. For sure. Yeah, I, I think the fact that they locked – they were smart. The Spurs were very smart to get him signed to a deal before we get to see him in action. Because, yeah, I mean, he, he was probably going to get a lot more money than this next summer if he can just stay healthy. But, you know, coming off the ACL, I don't blame him for wanting to lock in $64 million either. It's life-changing money. So what I think it's of the five deals, it was my favorite value uh, on both sides. Buddy Heald was close second. But I just I absolutely love the Murray deal because I am still remain very high on his long-term upside and you know, locking in a starting point guard for $16 million a year when, again, freaking Terry Rozier almost got 20 Like, <laughs> you're paying DeJounte Murray less than Terry Rozier. That's a, a win every time. The last extension, Chris, was Torian Prince at two years, $29 million. And it, apparently, I think it was Kevin Pelton who said that, like, this was the first time he in his database that he saw a two-year uh, extension off of a rookie scale deal instead of a four year extension. So, what do you think about this one? Um, it, it, like hearing it again, it sounds a little high, but I mean, Torian Prince is a is a talented player who, frankly, that timeline and the idea that it being two years, I think, is almost worth. Even if you think it's a slight overpay, like I might think, it seems more valuable to have him at the two years. Um, because of the fact of you, you're going to figure out a lot about the the direction of your franchise in that time between Kyrie, how Kevin Durant looks at that point, 
Um, and then it gives you the ability to pivot away from that if it's something that you don't really need Torian Prince or you don't really need someone of that caliber there. So I, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. It is probably a little higher than I would have wanted to go, um, even though I think Prince is a pretty decent player. Um, but I'm looking more at, their, at some of the other things that I think they might need in the next few years. Like I, I was really underwhelmed watching their game against the Timberwolves um, down low as far as Jordan and even Jared Allen didn't look very good. Um, Towns did everything he wanted to and then some. Um, so and, and they didn't look good offensively either, the two of them. So I, it, like I said, a little higher than I would go, but I, I, I like the flexibility that it gives them as they're trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if nothing else, it locks them into more of that same core for the next couple of years. Right. Uh, if they decide they want to make a swing for a third star, that's a good salary matching piece. So something to keep on the radar. But for now, I mean, their forward depth is probably the biggest weakness of that team until KD comes back and with Wilson Chandler suspended for the first 25 games. So Prince is going to play a big role out of the gate. I think he played 41 minutes in that debut the other night and played relatively well. Like I think, right, Chris, it's it's a little higher than what his production would suggest so far. But, you know, he's got the three and D skill set in theory um, to, to live up to that deal. And, you know, Atlanta, he was a little underwhelming last year, but maybe he's just not meant to be a primary scoring option. But with especially when KD comes back, but even without, you know, with Kyrie, Harris LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie there, he can slink more back into a complementary role that may fit him a little bit better. Um, and then more at the last one, it wasn't a rookie scale extension deal, but it was an extension nonetheless. Chetty Osman, I believe it was four years. 31, 31 right? Yeah. Thoughts on so, that? So, yeah, on paper, I like it. Here's the thing for me. I have a hard time evaluating Osman because he plays for the Cavs. And that's not to make a joke. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. really not. It's just the Cavs are so bad and the roster is is so weird that you don't really know if this is just a result of of a lack of options or Osman just being legitimately good. I I hope the latter. And I do think we've seen something from him that suggests that he he is a long-term piece in this league. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it's not that high of a deal, so regardless, they'll, they'll live with it. I mean, it's under $10 million a year, so it's fine. Um, it was four years, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I, I just <laughs> yeah, just wanted to make sure. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot of thoughts on it, to be honest with you. I mean, it's it's. I really feel that it comes down to him proving it over a full full season. I mean, last year it was he was at 13 points, just under five rebounds, but the team was was just you know a crap show. <laughs> right. And they're probably right. going to be the same this year. So, if he can raise the level of of quality in, in, on this team just by being out there, um, then yeah, I guess it's worth it. But right now, I have no idea who what he is as a basketball player. Honestly, it's so yeah. difficult to evaluate Cleveland Cavaliers players. <laughs> right. If nothing else, it locks them into, I mean, you know, seven or eight million dollars a year is very cheap right now. It's less than the non-taxpayer right. mid-level. So if he hits, that's going to look like a massive steal in a year or two. Yeah, and if he becomes just you know an ho-hum average player, that's fine too. Right. I mean, that's what you would be being like. I mean the Pistons, I feel like, give out that contract every year to, like, who was it, Landry Fields a couple of years ago? Yeah, uh, Langston Galloway. And, yeah, 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 yeah. 
well, that's a good place to wrap up, guys. So, Chris, thank you again for joining us. One more time, can you let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work? Sure. Uh, the Herring, H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA on Twitter. Very good. And then check check Chris out uh, at 538. Plenty of good stuff there this season, I'm sure. Um, in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at the NBA pod. You can find our Twitter handles in our bio. So give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found on iTunes. Please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. And we're now being hosted on Spreaker. So check them out on Twitter at Spreaker. Until next time, I'm Brian Toporek, and I was joined today by Morton Jensen and Chris Herring. Have a good weekend, guys. Enjoy the first weekend of basketball. You too, man. With the Capital One Quicksilver card, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. It's easy. That's just the way I like it. Oh, that's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, Uh uh-huh. Quicksilver card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? That's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Capital One Bank, USANA. Uh